15. We are in part four of a series on what does it mean that God is our Father. And um, this is our second week looking at this, the most famous of Jesus' teach parables about this. The story known as the parable of the prodigal son, which probably should be known as the parable of the extraordinary father. Um, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Today's message is entitled, The Deep Costly Love of the Father. Hope you're there. Verse 11, this is the word of God. And he, that is Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. May the Lord bless the reading of this remarkable story. And let's, uh, let me pray. Lord, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a truism, a kind of fact out there that you are our Father and you love us. And I pray, Lord, today um, 
I'm going to just try my best to try to convey the depths of the truth of this passage. And I pray that you would help us not just know in our head like a truism, like a dead fact, but you would give us a conviction deep in our heart what it means that you love us. In Jesus' name. Can we get this? I'd like to start with a, uh, a little slideshow. What's going on here? There we go. All right. Can we get the light? Turn, turn the lights off. Actually, turn all the lights off, probably for this first one. All right. What I'd like to do is um, just talk a little bit about just how a father loves children and to start off this message. And the way I, I did it is not, bec- not because I'm, I'm a particularly good father or an exception. I'm probably about an average father in terms. I don't think that the way I love my children is so much greater or better than the way other fathers love their children. It's probably, I hope that most of the fathers can or love their children at least something the way I love my children and, and that we're, it's probably normal. And what I'd like to just show you a little slideshow of my daughter, <laughs> of when of a, and particularly of a special day that I remember when she was really little. This is my daughter, Laura. And so um, this is my daughter, Laura, when she was about six months. This is where she is. And this is, for those of you who can't see what this is, this is her baptism, right? And um, this is Pastor Steve Park. I served under him um, at that time. And this is what she looked like uh, on that day, right? And it was, it was a beautiful day. I really remember that day. Um, but this is a, a different day I'd like to show you. But, and this is just, I'd just like to take you quickly through this slideshow of this day. Um, I looked it up. This is March 2nd, 2003. And this is what Laura looked like about a, a few weeks later. She's seven months old in this picture. And um, I particularly remember this day, right? Um, you know, parents love their children. And it's really quite a life changer when you, when you have your first child. And... I, I particularly remember this day because this was the first day I ever really saw that I, I, I distinctly remember that my daughter really responded and I, I felt like she could see and know how much I delighted in her. <laughs> and um, so this is, was our bedroom and, and, and we lived in, a, in a, a modest little townhouse out in Philadelphia. This was when, in, in the early years of my doctoral studies. And I took my daughter, I had to go do something up in, I was watching my daughter, and I had to go do something and get something from my bedroom. I took her up there and I put her on our bed. And then every time I would look at her, she would start giggling and laughing. And then when I turn it off, she would go, hmm, right? And then when I look back and I'd go, ha, and she'd just start laughing again. And then, and then I would look away and then I would kind of peek to see if she was looking. And then, and then every time I turned back, she would just start laughing all over again. And this little, we had this moment. And that's what it was. It was just a special moment. It was just me and my daughter, and it was a special moment on March 2nd, 2003, and I took a bunch of pictures because it was so funny to me. And so here, just let me just run you through them, right? That's what she was like. <laughs> so she'd roll over and laugh, and she'd go, huh? Okay, so she'd, then I'd, t- I'd turn around, and her face would get all still, and then she'd laugh. I think this one was my favorite. She'd do the little Superman and go, mm, like this, right? And then she'd laugh again. 
And she looked a little con perplexed. Close her eyes. Superman. <laughs> oh, huh? What are you doing, Dad? And then she left, right? So just a quick little... Now, here's what she looks like today. That's her right there. This is uh, my cousin's wedding, right? I know this one. This one looks, she, you know, whatever's on her, whatever's on her heart, it comes out on, on her face. But uh, my, this is what we're talking about this one today. And um, she loves food. This was right after a piano recital. This is one of our, uh, this is my father's favorite Chinese restaurant. We went there. And um, this is my birthday, actually, just from a couple months ago. And how she has her, her head on my shoulder, that is just totally typical Laura. That is what it, she's like, all right? The lights. Okay, go up that. Um, I'm going to share starting off with that. Um, you know, we have a number of parents in this room, and some of you are maybe young couples without children, or some of you guys, for those of you who are, you know, you don't have children. Um, let me just share a little something about what it's like to become a father. Um, until I think you become a father or a mother, until you have your own child, I don't think you quite know how deeply you've been loved. You just don't know, right? Um, it is, I think, perhaps except, the only other thing that's maybe the biggest, biggest life changer is possibly getting saved, right? And if you, got, if you got saved when you were a young kid or you grew up in the church, it might not have been as dramatic for you, but getting saved maybe when you were, that was very, that could have been a very dramatic thing. But the only other thing that I think is quite as, as similar and even compares as in, in terms of changing your life is having a kid, right? Um, not falling in love. I mean, and uh, my wife and I, I mean, you know, we, we have a good love story. We fell in love. We're not one of these, like, we just became friends and we're like, yeah, let, let's, like, marry each other, you know? We have a really good love story and we really deeply fell in love. And, um, you know, not everybody necessarily, but we had that blessing and, you know, we had a good marriage, and you get married, and, change, you know, getting married changes your life, but really nothing quite compares to having a child, right? And then the, the day you become a father, you become a mother, that is a total, that is a, such an incredible, that is a, a life changer. And when you have a kid, you find out that you love this child not because they're cute, Right? I mean, my daughter was cute, but I don't know. Some of you are like, she didn't look too cute to me. She had a big old round face. I don't know. Maybe you think she's cute. Maybe she should. To me, she was just gorgeous. And it's not because your child is cute. It's not because your child is smart, because your child just like poos on you and like pees on you and wakes up in the middle of the night, can't even talk, can't really respond. For the first few uh, months, they don't even really, like, they have no real, they have like very little in the way of social response toward you, right? Um, and yet you love your child because you love your child. Is it because they're smart? Is it because they're tall? Is it because, no, no, you just love them because you love them because you love them, and it is powerful. It is crazy powerful, right? It is so powerful, like, you can't turn it off. You can't not do it. And all parents, you know, I want you to think about this next time you meet your parents, you know, you may be all grown up now and you're smart and you went to school and you make your own money and, you know, you're, you're so independent. But when your parents see you, they still see you like that. They probably still see you like that, right? When I um, look at my children, 
You know, they, my, my daughter now is 10 years old. I still see her like that. That's how I still so I see her. Um, does, do any of you have a Google screensaver? That's a, I have that on all my computers, and that's one of, one of my favorite programs. If you ask me what my, my favorite, it's not Word or like my browser or whatever. It's actually Google screen, screensaver because, you know, you sit there and you're working, and after about 10 minutes or so, your, 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 your screensaver kicks up. What I have is I have all my pictures on, on my computers, and about like 80%, 90% of my pictures are pictures of my children. And it just so happens that right around when Laura was born is when we've got our first digital camera. I don't have as many pictures from Hudson's first year and a half or so, but like pretty much since Laura was born, I have like all the pictures. And, um, and so after about 10 or 15 minutes or so, the, the pictures start to roll, and they randomly just go through my children's life. And they, they'll come up when, they're, when my son is eight or when my daughter was a baby. There, when I have pictures of literally of my daughter sitting on the can. <laughs> I, have, I, have, um, I have pictures of my kids crying. I have my kid, pictures of kids, my, my son playing baseball, of them eating, of them being bad, of them being annoying <laughs> in every clothes that they have. And, and they just come up. And you know what? I, I just love, in the middle of the day when I'm tired or I'm stressed and those pictures just come up, it just makes me happy. It just makes me happy. And when I see my kids, you know, um, you know I'm a busy pastor, and those of you guys think, oh, is a, is a pastor? pastors can be busy, all right? And, and there are days that I have long hours, and there are days I get up, and, and, then, and then I don't see my kids all day, and then I come home, and they're asleep. And so one of the things I like to do is I go, I go into their room, and I just look at them. I just look at them. I see, I, I, I know exactly, and it's really interesting how each of them have a personality even when they're sleeping. <laughs> even when they're sleeping. But the youngest sleeps like this. <laughs> right? Sprawled out, like perpendicular to the, I don't know why she sleeps like that, but that's how she sleeps regularly, right? Um, but they even have a personality while you're sleeping. And while they're, I just look at their faces and this ache, this powerful ache of love wells up, and I see them like this. I can see them when they were babies. I see all of it comes up. And I can imagine that when, you know, if I grow old to a really old man, and I'm like 90, and my son is like, you know, like in his 60s or something like that, I will still see, I look at my daughter, and I'll still see this little baby girl. And it'll be a powerful love. Right? Now I want to ask you a question. You know, there is this powerful love that fathers and mothers know about because you feel it. It's, it's incredible. But let me ask you, how do you know if you're loved? Hmm? How do you know? How do you know if you're really, truly, powerfully, deeply loved? Huh? You know, we, we live in a society that I think the word gets bandied about a lot and it's in a lot of songs and it's in a lot of movies but we really don't quite know if we what it is and when it is. And we, I think we, in many ways, don't even know what the heck love is. Um, I watched a movie recently, which I think kind of portrays the, the, the confusion of our society when it comes to love. And um, who here has seen the movie 50-50? Anybody seen that movie? 50-50, yeah, like... Only the young people have seen the movie. Three or four of the young people. 50-50. My wife, my wife and I, I, re- I read a review about this movie. It said it was good. So 
I, you know, I got it on my little movie queue, and it came in the DVD. My wife and I watched it recently. And uh, for those of you who may not have seen this movie, 50-50 is, uh, stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You know, he, uh, know, he's getting kind of famous now, but he, he's the star of this movie. And he plays a young man in his 20s. His name is Adam, and he works. He's a kind of, a, he, he's a kind of diligent and polite young guy. And he works for a radio station, and he lives with his girlfriend. Right? He has a living girlfriend. And um, Adam, he gets a pain in his back, and he goes to see the doctor, and the doctor lets him know that you have a tumor back there. And this tumor, and he names the tumor, and it turns out it's cancer. And it's a form of cancer. It's not like lung cancer or skin cancer or something that's more famous. It's this really obscure, this, you know, this uh, hard-to-pronounce name. And he says, you have cancer. And then Adam goes home. He looks this thing up, and he goes, what are my chances to survive this thing? And he finds out the, 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 his chances are about 50%, hence the name of the movie, 50-50. And what the movie is about is what is it like when a young man in the prime of his life, you know, finds out he has cancer and then how his life changes up. And the movie is kind of funny, and, but when I look at this movie, the, what, what's in it, the movie, what's, is, there's parts that are funny, but it's actually quite bleak. There's no God in this movie. And there's a portion in the movie, he's living with his girlfriend, he tells his girlfriend that he has cancer. Her name is Rachel, and she's quite pretty. And then he says something, he says this to her. He says, you know, I didn't ask for this. You didn't ask for this. You didn't sign up for this. If you want, you don't have to stick around. You can bail. That's what he says to her. And then the actress who who plays, it's, uh, I think it's Bryce Dallas um, Howard. She, uh, she's actually, she plays that scene quite well. Her face gets, there's this ambiguous look on her face. She's like, ugh. And right there, when you're watching the movie, you know she doesn't really quite want to stay, and she doesn't really quite really love him, but she doesn't want to leave because, I mean, his, the, the bottom of his life just dropped out, and in his most vulnerable state, she doesn't want to just say, okay, you know what, well, you're my boyfriend, I'm just going to leave you, because what would that say about her, huh? What would that say about her? And yet, this is the kind of society we live in now, that we live in a society where everybody thinks, you know, your life is your own. And in your own, you have a space. And in your space, you get control. And when you meet other people, they get to to make all their choices and they control their life. You have yours. And people can't enter into that space and you can't burden them in, in in their space. You know that... Um, every, every culture has a certain amount of literally physical space <laughs> that, that uh, sociologists and anthropologists actually literally study this, that in America, the, the amount of physical space you're supposed to give to a person is bigger. In other countries, you know, you can t- come right up to their face and talk to them. When you're eating, you can sit closer to them. You know, your arms can touch. But you notice in America that if you sit in a plane and if your arm leans over and you and your elbow like accidentally touches the other person's elbow. You're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> you have to say you're sorry because your elbow touched their elbow. I mean, like you're sorry, right? And a person's space is supposed to be, you have to have a certain amount of space. If they stand a little too close to you, you just kind of go. You literally start to back up and you won't get into their space. And right there in the middle of this movie, when Adam tells Rachel, hey, you can bail, you know what he's telling her? 
He's telling her, I'm burdening your space. You, 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 you can go, right? But you know, everybody gets to have their own life. You get to have their own space. But you know, there is a downside to this thing. The downside is, well, we all really want, one, in one sense, you want autonomy, you want control, you want to be able to be the Lord of your own life, you want to be able to fulfill and complete your own life. But the downside of this thing is, when the bottom drops out and when you have need, will somebody be there for you? Will somebody be there for you? Will they commit to you? Will they go out of their way to be there for you? Because now the look on her face was great because you can tell she's like, Ugh. like she just now knows her life just changed up. Her life was going to become incredibly so much more inconvenient. She is going to have to cook for him and take care of him and take him to his doctor's appointments and be there for him. And this ambiguous look on her face, she can tell she's like, she wants to do it, but doesn't want to do it. And as the movie progresses, I mean, well, she doesn't do it. You know, she, I won't tell you exactly everything that happens, but she does. She basically fails to be there for him. And later on, as when she fails to be there for him, Adam gets angry with her and he says, I gave you an out. I gave you an out, but now you said you're going to be in, but you're not in. And right there, I think, is a little story of the microcosm of all of us. In one way or another, you know what? You want somebody to say to you, you'll be in. You'll be there. And when I really deeply need you, even if it's inconvenient for you, you will love me. (laughs) You'll love me. But we're afraid. We're afraid that nobody will be in this space. And actually, it's even worse than that. We're afraid that you won't do it for somebody else either, you know? He says, you know, it's not like we're married. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that was really interesting because even, I guess, I guess even to the secular mind, because this is a very secular movie without any God, and even to the secular mind, even marriage signifies that level of love commitment. But, you know, if we're really honest, it's not even marriage. You're not even sure if people who are married will stick it out for you, right? And, a lot of us, were afraid to get married or even afraid, even if you are married, you're afraid if my husband or if my wife becomes that burdensome to me, will I really stick it out like that? You know? And so this question I like to raise for you in one sense is this. You know, how do you know when someone loves you? And I would say this, when they pay the cost. When they pay the cost. And yet, here we are, we live in a society where you're not, you're like, you can't let anybody pay the cost for you. Only you can pay the cost for you, right? But if you do that, will you be loved? Will you know love, right? And you know, in our society, most of us, it produces not just an insecurity of love, but what it also does is it, it just makes the whole notion of love very shallow. Most of us today just think, that love is primarily a feeling, right? If someone just has a real deep feeling for you, but you know what? Uh, it's like you watch them. It's in our movies. It's in our songs. Um, you know, you can get, a, it's like a, there's this guy meets a girl and he falls in love with her, but then there's another girl. Maybe she loves him, right? 
This other girl may be better for him than her. And if you look, you can span back and you have movies like this where, where the boy falls in love with the girl, but then there's another girl who's really better for him. But, you know, he can't see that. Why? Because he just got this feeling and it was like a disease. He caught it and now he can't help it. He just loves her, right? But then as the movie progresses, it ends up in tragedy because actually she doesn't. And when you get right down to it, if I push it this way, it's more than a feeling, right? It has something more like this. There's a cost. That's kind of a long intro to get to the text. So we look at this story. I want want to point out some things to you. It's a story about a father. And, And it's about a father. It's a father who one thing after another. This reason, one of the reasons this, this story is so moving is because as you walk away from this story, there is no question that this father loves his sons. Right? There's no question. Right? And let me just point out some of these things. You have a son. He says to his father, let me have my inheritance now, which is effectively to put the middle finger to your dad's face and said, I wish you were dead. And so if you go to all these other societies, other cultures that still live in the way that was like first century Palestine, they would say it would never happen because if a son were to ever say that, everybody else in the society would want to kill him. They would know he deserves to die. So here he is, his son. And what he did was one of the most hateful, despicable things he could do. He pretty much deserves to die. And then he runs off with all the money. And you know what? The father, he says, you can go. I won't hate you. And I won't kill you, and I won't reject you. Instead, I'll actually do this. And what does he do? His first cost. He literally rips apart. It's this is in this story. It's uh, one third of the whole estate, right? Because in this culture, the first son will get a two a double portion. That means he gets two thirds, and so the younger son will get one third. He has to literally rip apart one third of his whole estate. He, his father, destroys his wealth first. Then the son leaves. You think that's, uh, the, that's all the cost? The son leaves. But you notice when he comes back, you never know how long it's been when, the, when he comes back. The father, who is it that sees him? It's the father that sees him. You know, the son has left. Everybody in the town has probably just forgotten about him. Or they're just saying, or if they still remember him, this is the only way they remember him is because he's the most horrific human being that's ever been in our town. The only way we remember him is because we have to watch out for him because we're going to beat him up when he comes back. We have to beat him down when he comes back. He is named in all the villages, in all the town, in all the families, don't turn out like him. He is horrible, right? That's the only way he's remembered. So everybody forgets about him. And so, but yet when he returns, who sees him? It's his father. And how could a father possibly see his son if... Every single day, he didn't get up, and he looks over the horizon, and he sees someone coming over. He's on a horse. Oh, could that be my son? And as he gets closer and closer and closer, oh, it's not. And then someone else comes over. He's looking over the horizon. Oh, someone's coming, coming down the road. Could that be my son? Oh, it's not. You know, I imagine his father. The only way this father could have seen his, be the one to go out and see his son is if every single night he thinks of his son. If he has pictures, and I know we didn't have pictures, he would remember the face of his son. There's a very interesting little detail in the story. This, when this son returns, 
He has no shoes. And you know what that's saying? This is Palestine. There's rocks all over the place, right? If a person walks with no shoes, you know what that is saying? That means he's so dirt poor, so low that he didn't even have shoes. And so if he's that poor and you never know how long he's been and you know, I, I think of him as like a guy, if he was today, he's the guy who went off, he'd have long hair and he'd be dirty and he's smelly, and he has no shoes, and maybe he's done drugs, and he just looks totally different in his body and his face would have looked worn. You know, maybe he would not even be recognizable. But how could his father recognize his son who was so different now that before, I mean, he's a wealthy man, he had everything, and now he has no robe. Now he does not have the ring, which signifies his identity. Now he doesn't even have shoes, because that's how pathetic and how poor he is. And yet, in the midst of the way he's all changed, his father can look at him and still know, that's my boy. How does he know? Because every single night, every day, he looks for him. And every night, he remembers him. He thinks of his face. You know, if one of my children, I think, were to ever ever do something like this to me and like break my heart and go away. I mean, I, I, I'd probably either die of grief or I would probably do this every day. You know, I could just imagine <laughs> it would be so painful if one of my children would break my heart and leave me. You know, would I turn off the Google screensaver because I just couldn't stand it? <laughs> I might have to. But maybe the Google screensaver will come on every night, every day, you know, in the middle of my work day, and I would see my children's face, and when they, I would look, I would look for them. And I would go to places that maybe I would hope that they would be, and I would look, maybe it could be five or ten years later, and I would just try to project how they would be. I think I would look for them. It would be like that, right? And that's the kind of father we're talking. There is the cost of his wealth. There is the cost of his heart ripped up every single night. There is the, the cost of the disappointment he feels every time someone walks over the horizon is not his, his boy. Right? The story goes on. He goes and he runs. Let me ask you something. When was the last time you ever saw your dad run? You ever, when was the last time you saw your dad run? My father is in his 70s now, in his early 70s. I, I, I don't think he's going to run. <laughs> um, the last time, I, I actually remember when I was, um, I think I was in high school, my, my family went out to a park, and my dad, I think it was in his 40s at that time, and he, and he started jogging around the park. He started jogging like this. My dad's got kind of a belly. This middle-aged man started jogging. And my, my, my brother and I were watching, and we just started laughing. We're like, we're like, oh, man. And just watching my dad just jog, not run, just jog very lightly. He, he looked like a fool, quite frankly. <laughs> and I, you could kind of see his belly kind of j- jiggling around as, as, he, uh, as he ran around on a nice summer day. You know, father's an older, dignified man. He is one of the wealthy and respected men of his town. You don't run. To run is to embarrass yourself. And then he runs to the sun. And you know, the clothes are not like these kind of clothes. You know, they're like kind of free-flowing robes. You know, his nakedness just starts to show. He would start to humiliate himself. 
And he runs across the town. You know, we're not talking some big, it's a, it's a simple town with one main street. And he runs across the town and everyone would see him. They would see his nakedness. And they would look at the sun and say, the humiliation. The humiliation. And yet this father does not care. He does not care. And then the boy comes home. The boy comes home, put my robe on him. And put my ring on him. And put shoes on him. And what is the most expensive meat I have in this place? Let's sacrifice that. And what is the most costly party we could have? Let's have that. And let everybody show up and they will look at me and go, what kind of a fool is he? What kind of an idiot is he? And they will look on me and shame. They would stick shame on me. And that is the, the way this father would. And you know what? He doesn't care. He does not care. And if that isn't enough of a cost, then the first son doesn't show up. The, the father has to run around and do the guess, which is what the first son should do. And everybody now is going to start talking. Where is the other son? And everybody's, what kind of a father is this? And even his good son, supposedly the good son, disrespects him. And so he has to go out there and starts pleading, even begging. The word is entreat. It's literally something more like beg. He's now he has now he's humiliated he was humiliated by one son now he's going to be humiliated by the other son the so-called good son the good son doesn't understand his father's heart he doesn't understand his father's pain he doesn't understand his father's longing you know imagine this first son when the father goes out on the porch and looks out on that road every single night the first son, he's just off doing his own thing. And when the boy comes back, he's got to know that his father is looking at the road every single night. And when the brother comes home, this first son is just saying, where's my party? Where's my friends? Where's my money? Where's my goat? Where's my meat? And here he is. In every single way, there's cost after cost after cost after cost. You don't look into this father's heart. and It doesn't ever tell you this father had feelings. It doesn't even say that the father loved his son. It doesn't even say that, you notice? But what you do is you see the cost and you just know he does. You know, um, you know we live in this time. And um, if you grew up even in a moderately decent home, I mean, your parents don't have to be like super great parents. They could be like C-minus parents, maybe D-plus parents, as long as they weren't abusive or they didn't abandon you or so forth, you know, they probably love you at least something like this. I mean, maybe not as deep as this, right? And yet, almost, I mean, I mean, just to a person, we all just take this for granted, <laughs> right? It's like it doesn't deeply move you that your parents love you like this, that you are loved like this. It doesn't, does it? Isn't that strange? And part of it is, you know in your head that you're loved, but deep down, does it impact you in the, in the core of your person? It doesn't quite, does it? Because to a certain extent, you just, 
get used to it. And it's strange, though, the more that you have grown up probably in a healthy family, the more you can take it for granted. It's, it's one of those things that you don't know about this until you become a parent, and then your kids start taking you for granted, and you just know, like, man, you just don't even know, right, what I go through, what I do for you, and how much I do for you, and how willingly and regularly I'll do it again and again and again, right? Of course, sometimes you yell about it, and sometimes you get aggravated about it, right? It's that, that, that feeling that the girlfriend has when she's aggravated to take her boyfriend to the cancer ward, but yet the parent keeps doing it, keeps doing it. And yet we just take it for granted. And just what's wrong with us, right? Um, I've been, I get this question every now and then. Why, is the, why didn't God just make it better? God is all-powerful, omnipotent, right? When God made the world and God made us, why didn't he just make us perfect? <laughs> why didn't he just make it so we would just get it and we would just be perfect? You ever get that question? Well, why is it so bad? You ever ask that question? I, get, I guess as a pastor, and especially in this day and age, I know, that question comes up pretty regularly. And, um, and what I like to do is kind of close this message with, with a little bit of an answer to that question. Right? The Bible gives you two kind of hints toward the answer to that question. One is Genesis 2, and the other is 1 Peter chapter 1. And in Genesis 2, most of you probably know this, in Genesis 2, what happens is, that is the story of the fall. God places Adam and Eve in an absolutely pristine creation. There is no sin. You know? Maybe some of you think, one of the reasons we take this for granted is because we're sinful. And we just... I like that. We're selfish. It's all about us. And we're sinners. And therefore, we don't really get the way we are loved. We don't get it. Right? And yet, in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, God places his children into an absolutely glorious place. Adam is without sin. He's not a sinner. You understand? And you know what Adam does to God who is his father? He does exactly what the second son in the story does. He basically says, God, I'd rather go my own way. That's what he does. This Luke 15 is not just a story that Jesus is telling us to pull our heartstrings. He is telling us about the meaning of the world. And in Genesis chapter 2, even when there was something in us, even before without sin, is lacking. Something about the meaning and the depths of love. In 1 Peter 1, there's this remarkable phrase. Verse 12, it says this. It says that the angels long to look into the things of the gospel. That's what it says. The angels. I want you to think about this. Angels have God. We're not talking about the angels who fall and become demons. The angels have God, and they can just look straight at God they have the full force of God's beauty and glory coming on them, right? So they have, they, what do they need to go look to go look at? What more do they need to go see? They're seeing the most glorious, beautiful being they could possibly see. Greater than the Grand Canyon, anything. They, they're, so they're looking at him right there, right? They have direct shot look at him. Why do they need to go? Why do they long to look 
into the things of the gospel. And here's what I think. All of creation, in one sense or another, was this. All of creation was intended so that human beings will find out the way God loves us is like this. That there is no cost. You know, one of the reasons why there's, I think, hurt and fallenness in this world is because then you could find out if someone loves you. If everything in your life was perfect, how would you know how deeply somebody loved you? Hmm? Just think about that for a second. So one of the reasons why people who are very rich and who are very good-looking and who have everything and very powerful, they have everything, but you know what they're probably not sure if they have? They're not sure if they're loved. It's really interesting. If the world was made perfect, how deeply would you know your Father in Heaven loves you? And so the Gospel proclaims this. God said, this is how I love you. And what did he pay for that? He didn't just stand back here and say, I'll give you good stuff. Because, you know, what, when you're an omnipotent being, what is, you know, here, I'll make a sunset for you. I'll make a Grand Canyon for you. I'll make you beautiful. I'll make you pretty. I'll make you rich. What are those things? Those are easy things for God to do, right? But for God to look at you and do this, let me give you the biggest, the, the most treasured thing that I have, the most inconvenient thing that I have, that which will cause me the most terrible pain, that which will cost me right down to the rip and rip me apart inside. God sends his son and let, literally lets on the cross the Trinity be rent apart. And he places it then. Let's his son and sacrifice son and lets himself be ripped apart so he can say to you, this is how I love you as your father. This is how I love you. This is how I love you. Let's pray. So many of us, Lord, were like, little children. And if our dad or our mom gives us the right birthday present or the right Christmas present or the right birthday party, we get something from them and then we go, oh, mommy and daddy loves me. You know, we, we grow up and our parents have done all these things for us and then we go, oh yeah, and then it just becomes this thing, my parents love me. But Ken, if we could actually let your heart be torn open, Lord. If we could just look into our parents' hearts and let it be torn open. If my daughter, Laura, could rip my heart apart and see what it's like. This powerful flow of love. And yet, you, you love us like that a million times, a zillion times over. Can it be true? And we look at the cross and know. Lord, I, I just pray that our people, everybody who hears this message and looks at Luke 15 and looks to the cross, they would not just think theology or Christianity. They would see 
their father and know how deeply their father pours an ocean of love on them. And you can't even stop yourself from loving us this way. It compels you to take on the greatest cost. Help us to know this deep in our being. In Jesus' name.